Today I am speaking with the philosopher Thomas Metzinger. Thomas is a full professor and director of the Theoretical Philosophy Group and the Research Group on Neuroethics and Neurophilosophy at uh, Johannes Gutenberg University in Germany. He is the founder and director of the MIND Group and adjunct fellow at the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced Studies, also in Germany. His research centers on the analytic philosophy of mind and applied ethics and the philosophy of cognitive science. And he is the editor and author of several books. He edited The Neural Correlates of Consciousness, and he wrote Being No One and The Ego Tunnel. And in addition to being a philosopher of mind, Thomas is also a long-term meditator. So as you can hear, we have many, many interests in common. Our conversation starts on a political note, the significance of World War II for the history of ideas, and the connection between Nietzsche and the Holocaust. Thomas gives us the German view of current U.S. politics. But then we go deep into questions of consciousness and the self. Uh, we talk about the role of intuition in science, the ethics of building conscious AI, the self as a hallucination, how we identify with our thoughts and the paradox of doing that, attention as the root of the felt sense of self, and the place of Eastern philosophy in Western science, as well as the limitations of secular humanism. So it's a very rich conversation, and it is a conversation that many of you asked for. Many of you have requested that I get Thomas on the podcast. So I bring you Thomas Metzinger. I am here with Thomas Metzinger. Thomas, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, good to meet you. Yeah, yeah we've never met, but I, I have followed you for some time now. I, I've been a uh, happy reader of your books and the anthologies you've edited. You've done really great work in the philosophy of mind. And you know this has been an area that I've been interested in for some time. We might have been at the same conference at some point and just didn't get a chance to meet, but it's a pleasure to meet you virtually. I've had to live with emails by people telling me, Thomas, Sam Harris, this guy's like you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I went to your website. Uh... I wouldn't wish that on anyone. All right. So, uh, Thomas, tell our listeners what your focus has been in philosophy in general and, and, and what work you're doing now. And then we're, we're going to get into, obviously, questions of consciousness and AI and the self and all your areas of interest, but how, how do you summarize what you do as a philosopher at this point? Well, my core competence is in something that's called analytical philosophy of mind. That's where I come from. I've done that for about three decades. But what one thing that is special about me is that I have done it in very strong cooperation with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, AI people for about 30 years. So my job has been to open up analytical philosophy of mind for a more for a deeper and more productive interdisciplinary cooperation. I've got a lot of resistance for this in my life. It was bad for my academic uh, career. Uh, but now, five years younger, there were four people in Germany like myself, and now it's just like a people's movement. All of the good young philosophers have one empirical area, like dreaming, social cognition, predictive coding where they're really good and they combine this. Um, but in this country, I got all the resistance. 
Yeah. What, what form did the resistance take and what, and what specifically was it focused on? Oh, uh, many different types. First, in Germany, philosophy has very strongly meant history of philosophy. Um, secondly, something like naturalism has always had a bad press. Um, people who thought, at least I have learned this as a student, that empirical sciences could contribute anything like bottom-up constraints for conceptual work, just hadn't understood what philosophy was in the first place because it was purely a priori theorizing. But then there's also this territorial thing. Um, I think you have recently had, for instance, to take this example of a freedom of the will debate too. We had a very hot one uh, a little earlier in the public. And a typical event was that prominent neuroscientists said there is no such thing as freedom of the will. And it got to a point where philosophers said, listen, this is not to be decided in the hard sciences at all. This is a philosophical problem, and there will be a philosophical solution. And then my friends from the neuroscience said, uh, you're beginning to understand it. It's not your problem anymore. We have solved it. And then all of the humanities just rose in protest, uh, you know. So it's also a question who is allowed to answer which questions. So you introduced yourself as an analytic philosopher that is usually contrasted with continental philosophies. Has the, the European commitment to what is known perhaps mostly in the States as continental philosophy, is that part of the problem here? It's part of the problem. Now there is pretty much of a peaceful coexistence. It has gone through many stages, but you must also see the historical situation, you know, uh, in World War II, we have either murdered or driven out of the country all of the Jewish intelligentsia. So many teacher-disciple relationships were completely cut off. And um, I'm very grateful to the generation of analytical philosophers who came before me to reconnect us, you know, to the global discussion again, to mankind's philosophical conversation. That was something that had to be established first after World War II, because there were many people who thought the hottest and most recent stuff is Heidegger. Who had more than a superficial connection with the trends that got so many people murdered and, and exiled. Of course. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's a fascinating moment of intellectual history. And this is not something I'm sure someone has written about it in Germany, but in English, I haven't read much about the way in which the war affected philosophy. But it's interesting to picture those teacher-student relationships being severed and Germany becoming isolated as a result. Well, there are many deeper dimensions to it. I mean, one is every German child at one age discovers uh, what has happened. I still very precisely know the moment when I discovered the atro atrocities my tribe had um, connected. I don't know if you want to hear the story. Oh, I, I would love to. But uh, how old are you, Thomas? I'm 59. So, so how old were you? I was 10, and this little scholar in me was awakening. And I was getting interested in the books in my parents' shelves, and I saw there was one book they put up very high because they didn't want me 
to see it. And of course, the next time they were out, I put a chair on my father's writing desk and crept up there. It was a photo book called The Yellow Star. And I saw bulldozers pushing piles of corpses into mass graves. And I saw photo documentation of medical experiments on Jews with phosphor burning away their flesh and stuff like this. And that was the moment when my childhood ended, you know, until then I was living in a world, you know, of cowboys and Indians and fairy tales. And I didn't know that something like this existed in reality. So as you grow up, when I was, when I was 16 years old, I was still firmly and honestly convinced that I had been born in the worst country of the whole world, you know, with that tribe, with that history. And there's this aftermath where you ask your parents, how much did you know? And they all tell you, we didn't know anything. And then you ask the other school children in the schoolyard. And they all say, my parents also say, they didn't know anything of this. And then you ask your history teacher, and they said, they tell you, don't let yourselves be fooled. Almost everybody knew. At what point in school do children begin to learn about the Holocaust? Is it somewhere between 10 and 16? Or is there, is there a standard year where this... I wouldn't know the curricula, maybe 14, 15, you get it in history uh, at that uh, time. And then I'm coming back to philosophy. Of course, young intellectuals, if you study philosophy, for us, the whole thing was completely different than for you because we were all trying to find out what in our own intellectual tradition made this possible. Where did this come from? Nietzsche, the genealogy of morals. You, because we have been a great philosophical nation with German idealism and everything. And then a very urgent question is how could this happen? So uh, studying philosophy meant something else for us. <laughs> yeah, it's like an intellectual and moral autopsy. <laughs> yeah. Did you come up with any answers there, or are there, are there any answers that are agreed upon? How was it possible? Oh, well, there is a century-long um, European tradition of anti-Semitism. And uh, what many people don't know in this year is that Martin Luther, for instance, was a hate pundit. He was the first person to explicitly in his writings say that the synagogues have to burn. And what many people also don't know is that the Reichskristallnacht actually was a birthday present for Luther, uh, who had his birthday. It was like celebrating a birthday party into his birthday. It was a gift the Nazis made to, um, you know, the founder of Protestantism. So there's a deep connection to the church uh, over the centuries, but then there's also plain old racism and uh, some philosophical contributions. The story on Nietzsche, as far as I know, is that basically he was misused by his sister and the Nazis and that his philosophy really is only in, in its misinterpretation something that could be useful to the worldview of Nazism. I, I must say, I've never been totally convinced of that, given some of the ranting one encounters in Nietzsche. What's your view of that? That's, of course, a long story. But of course, he couldn't be a fascist and he couldn't be a Nazi because he couldn't be that. I also, technically, I don't 
um, regard him as a philosopher because he, in my view, doesn't have a serious interest in the growth of knowledge. He's more a racist writer. But if you look at the genealogy of morals and you imagine <clears throat> you're a young German, then what you take away from it is we are a warrior race. The Jews are smarter than we are. The Jews have come up with something, I'm quoting, to poison our blood. They are poisoning our blood with Christian morals. And they have done this. And the only thing we can do is remember that we are stronger, not smarter, but stronger because we are a warrior race. So we have to get rid of this you know, Christian moral of the slaves and so forth. And that was, of course, a preparation because imagine you're a young intellectual at that time and this is presented to you as one of your best philosophers. Um, that was dangerous and that was not innocent. And that was certainly a preparation what, for what came afterwards. Well, that's fascinating. I want to just go again. This is a topic I was not aware we were going to stumble on, but I just I can't leave it. <laughs> Neither was I. This is great. It's not often I get a, a direct window onto this experience or that people even have this experience. So your description of what it was like to be a child stumbling upon that book and the, the evidence of the Holocaust that had not yet reached you. And then the experience of talking about this with parents and friends who talk about it with their parents and getting a kind of denial, really, it sounds like a blanket denial that anyone was aware at the time what was happening. And yet the official story from your historians and your teachers of history is no, of course, more or less everyone knew this was happening. And the whole culture is complicit on some level. How do you reconcile those two pieces? Because in terms of Germany's reputation, it is much more of the latter sort, that Germany has, has quite famously really lived in a kind of purgatory of self-criticism since World War II uh, in a way that Austria hasn't and, and Japan hasn't. I mean, you know, in Austria and Japan, you have a more or less official denial of just how morally dark their behavior became. But with Germany, you, you, everyone seems to acknowledge that there has been an impressive and, and perhaps even sufficient degree of hand-wringing over the Holocaust and over World War II. But it sounds like your experience is one of where the, where the grown-ups are more or less living in total denial about that. How do you square those two things? Well, some the last witnesses are dying right now. Right now, many have finished their lives in denial. They have also been psychologically traumatized. For instance, my father had to go to war with seventeen, and he wrote a book about things he couldn't talk about. They have seen horrible things as children, uh, and um, he told me when they saw eight hundred American airplanes fly over the Rhine Valley in broad daylight using the Rhine Valley and counted them as children. And they came back without their bomb load. And then it was the first time it dawned on them that they might not be winning this war, like everybody told them. Um, so actually, I didn't want to go this direction at all. And 
but now it of course connects to Trump and your political situation because I think as a German we can bring a unique perspective onto what you are living through right now. So I'm I'm so very grateful for the US for the thousands of beautiful young men that you have sacrificed, you know, um, to defeat the generation of my grandfather and my father. You brought us democracy, um, the Marshall Plan and everything. And now see how this has played out 70 years later. You are lying on the ground uh, uh, in a very serious situation. And we are one of the most stable democracies in the whole world. It's completely bizarre to be a German right now. Everybody is tapping on your shoulder and saying, hey, you are the leaders of the civilized world now. Are you aware of this? Do something. All the young people come to, you know, to Germany, um, want to study here. Um, the financial criminals from London are starting to relocate to Frankfurt. Even the southern Italian mafia is in Stuttgart and in southern Germany. Everybody likes it. Everybody thinks this is one of the most stable countries in the world. And now on the other side of it, everything is crumbling apart uh, 70 years later on the other side of the Atlantic. And one of the many things I think we can bring to the table is there will be an aftermath. And you should think about this too. Trump is not going to last very long. But there will be an aftermath to this. Um, children will ask their parents questions. What have you voted? Have you stood your ground? Um, what have you done, Daddy? What, where were you in these decisive years? This is not going to be over when it's over. There will be a deep intergenerational rift in the society, and it will be a major threat to social cohesion that you may need decades to get over. So there will be an aftermath to this bizarre Trump episode right now, and you better think about it now, how you want to go about it. And then there will be no aftermath to climate change. You know, um, climate change is going to go on for centuries, even in the best possible scenario. There's not going to be, this episode is not going to be over. And, you know, the U.S. are now what I would call a climate rogue state. Uh, they're completely isolated from the rest of mankind. Uh, and, you know, your children and grandchildren will have to deal with that, too. And um, it's difficult. We just went through this the last 70 years. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that perspective. I can tell you that what you just said about how dire it appears from the German point of view, that, that we have elected a person like Trump to run this country, uh, that will seem like uh, sheer delusion to anyone who is uh, at all sympathetic with Trump, or, or at least thought Clinton was terrible enough that it, it was uh, just a kind of an ordinary judgment call to pick Trump over her. And it will, it will seem hyperbolic, I think, to most people who are even worried about Trump. Um, I don't want to spend any real time on him because I don't, know how, I don't know how much you've listened to this podcast, but I probably have 20 hours of me shrieking about Trump on this podcast. And, and even those who agree with me are, are, are probably sick of it by now. 
So I have to sort of pick my moments here on this topic. But I take your point. I think we're, you know, we you know, happily, with all the chaos that we see in the U.S. government at the moment, there hasn't been much concrete consequence to Trump's tenure and his incompetence and his narcissism, the way in which he's eroded the norms of our politics and civil society. It's been a fairly quiescent period in human history, despite the fact that North Korea keeps testing ICBMs and Russia keeps hacking the electoral process of democracies throughout the West. But I completely take your point that there's no telling how bad it could get with a person like him in charge. I'm not at all complacent on that topic. And, you know, insofar as I can do anything on this podcast, I have made noise about this to the limits of even my fans' patience. But uh, I, I want to move on to um, topics of our, our, our mutual philosophical concern and, and scientific concern, because there's just so much to talk about here. Well, may I just briefly interrupt before we leave that topic all together? Um, I mean, I went to your website when I got all these emails and said, okay, uh, this looks good, uh, but it's probably one of these American self-marketing robots. And, and then I had no time to read any of your books. Now you invited me. And during workouts, I now have uh, listened to many of your podcasts. And I think you're doing a great job. And it's fantastic. And uh, in bringing up this ugly hobby horse again and again, and I mean, I just want to say one thing and then we can leave the topic because we're not completely impartial and we have egotistic motives to, I don't want to insult anybody, but it's one thing if you guys wreck down your own country completely. That's one thing. It's far away. But the other thing is, of course, you know, we all know the moron is hard to predict. I don't know who he will pick a fight with, but... I'm very much afraid um, that he underestimates China when he wants to incinerate North Korea or something like this, you know. And this is a very, very um, dangerous situation. And I find this is the last thing I want to say, and then we can leave that topic. I find myself in a, I never thought that I would have thought something like this, but my hope is actually with the higher ranks of the American military. I know that there are some very conservative people who are decent, who have some decency. And I think that's our main hope now, that they, if the day has come, peacefully take him out of office and do not follow that order. Um, I think that's, that's the people we have to hope for now. And that there are some, you know, senior persons maybe who have combat experience and who know what that really means, uh, that that is not a golf course in Florida or something like that, and that they will act. Yeah, well, obviously you as a, a German and a, a scholar of the relevant history are in a good position to warn our society what it means to elect somebody who is not disposed to pay attention to constitutional or, or democratic norms. But you know, Germany in particular is aware of just how, you know, as, as Timothy Snyder, the historian, said on this podcast, just how you know, the people go to the polls not knowing that they're voting away their freedom or that they're voting for the last time. And yet this, this is an experience that democracies have had. And we haven't had that in, in the U.S. There is an assumption that our institutions are strong enough and that 
the stakes are always low enough that you know nothing terrible will happen when we put a selfish imbecile of this magnitude in charge. But I just think it's not a safe assumption, and, and I'm as you know I've expressed my my worries again, more or less ad nauseum on this podcast. But you know I, I hope um, he gets reined in by everything that can rein him in, and the military professionals included. So Thomas, let's start with consciousness. We have questions of uh, intellectual and moral interest that will outlive us and have, you know, they outlived Plato, they outlived the Buddha, they outlived everyone who has touched them, and uh, I think they will endure. But the mystery of consciousness, how do you think about consciousness? Well, I've been in this um, for 30 years now. You may know that I'm one of the people who founded the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness 22 years ago. Um, I think the first thing we have to understand that consciousness is not one problem, but that it's a whole bundle of problems, some more conceptual, some more empirical. And um, that's the first step. It's not that one big mystery out there. There's attention, there's sensory discrimination, there are conceptual issues about what may be conceivable and so forth. And I think the consciousness community in the last two decades has really made breathtaking progress. We're getting somewhere. And in this one popular book, The Ego Tunnel, I've actually uh, predicted that by 2050, we will have the global neural correlate of consciousness. We will isolate that in humans. And um, that's only a very first step. But I think it will not be a mystery. Life is not a mystery anymore. But 150 years ago, many people thought that this is an irreducible mystery. So you're, you're not a fan anymore, if you ever were, of the framing by David Chalmers of the hard problem of consciousness? No, that's so boring. I mean, that's last century. I mean, you know, we all respect Dave, and we know he's very smart and has got a very fast mind. There's no debate about that. But conceivability arguments are just um, very, very weak. If you have an ill-defined folk psychological umbrella term like consciousness, then you can pull off all kinds of scenarios and uh, zombie thought experiments. It doesn't really, it helped to clarify some issues in the mid-90s. Um, but the consciousness community has listened to this and just moved on. I mean, uh, nobody of the serious researchers in the field thinks about this anymore, but it has taken on like a folkloristic life of its own. As a lot of people talk about the hard problem, who wouldn't be able uh, to state what it consists in uh, now. Well, well, maybe we should just state it just so that those listeners who, who didn't hear me speak with David on the podcast or, or haven't read my book, Waking Up. Basically, the, the issue is this, that consciousness, if you define it as, uh, to follow Thomas Nagel here, the fact that it's like something to be what you are, the fact that, it, that a brain of sufficient complexity or a, a creature at, at a certain point in evolutionary terms has a subjective, qualitative perspective on the world. The lights go on. This formulation, I mean, there have been many variants of it, but 
Famously, the philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote a paper, a very influential paper in the early 70s, titled, What is it like to be a bat? And he said, you know, we may never know, a bat experience could be totally unlike our own, but if it is like something to be a bat, if if you switch places with a bat, that wouldn't be synonymous with just the canceling of experience, but you would be laid bare to a different domain of experience. Well, that is the fact of consciousness in the case of a bat. Whether we ever understand it or not, the fact that the lights are on, the fact that there is a perspectival qualitative character there, that is what we mean by consciousness. And I've always thought that that is a good definition. It doesn't answer any of what Chalmers called the easy problems of consciousness. Those are separate. You know, how does the eye and the visual cortex transduce light energy into a visual mapping of, of the visual scene. The hard problem on Chalmers's account is always this bit, the fact that it's like something to do any of that, because it's the transition from unconscious scene, which human brains do and robots do, to the conscious experience of scene, which we know humans accomplish, and at the moment, we, there's no good reason to think our, our robots or computers do. And a corollary to this framing is that any explanation we get about consciousness, I mean, let's just say we you know, open the, the back of the book of nature and we get the right answer about consciousness, and it turns out that you need exactly you know, 10,000 information processing units of a certain character. They have to be wired in a certain way. They have to be firing at a certain hertz. And just lo and behold, that is what gives you consciousness. And, and if you change any of those parameters, well, then the lights go out. Let's say we knew that to be true. It still wouldn't explain the emergence of consciousness in a way that is intuitively graspable. It still would seem like a miracle. And, and that's not the way most or really any satisfying scientific explanation works out. When I give you an explanation for any higher level property, you know, the fluidity of water or the brittleness of glass in terms of its micro constituents, well, then that explanation actually does run through and conserves your intuitions about how things function at a lower level so as to appear as they do on a higher level. And so it is, I, I would argue, even with the example you just gave of life. So you, you said that 100 years ago, or even less, 70 years ago, perhaps. Let me get my dates right. It's more like um, 80 years ago. People felt that we would never have a satisfactory explanation of what life is or how life, the energy of life, relates to physical structure and how heredity could be a mere mechanism and how you know, the healing of disease or from wounds could be just a matter of chemistry. But of course, with the, the advent of molecular biology and other insights, we figured all of that out without, really without remainder, and, and therefore vitalism or a notion that there has to be a, any kind of life spirit in matter, that has gone out the window. And that's another analogy that doesn't really get at how mysterious consciousness is, because something like reproduction or growth or healing from injury, that really can be explained mechanistically, and, and our, our intuitions run through there. So the conceivability issue for me with the hard problem isn't so much a statement about what is true. It's not that 
I doubt that consciousness can be an emergent property of information processing because it's so difficult to conceive or impossible to conceive how that works. But it is just a statement about the seeming limits of explanation. It sounds to me that whatever you put in the space provided will still sound like the restatement of a miracle, which is really analogous to how, to take an analogy to cosmology, the idea that everything, including the laws of nature, emerged out of nothing, right? Like just things exploded into being. Now, that may in fact be true, but I would argue, or at least it seems to me, that it's inconceivable or uninterpretable or it's not understandable. It's, 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 it's the statement of a miracle. And so that's, that's really my, my fondness for the hard problem is, is a matter of epistemology more than it is ontology. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. You've now mentioned so many uh, important points that I don't really know where to start. So maybe we should just start say technically the hard problem is that phenomenal properties only nomologically supervene on functional properties, but not logically. That is the conscious properties of sweetness or redness or whatever the bat perceives is determined by information flow in its brain in this world under the laws of nature holding in this world. But there are other worlds where we can imagine that the bat is a zombie with exactly that information flow in its brain, that there could always be a functional isomorph to Sam, right? Some, some entity that has the same uh, functions on a certain level of granularity but which instantiates no phenomenal properties. Thomas, I, just, I want to jump in here for one second because I want people to understand the distinctions you're making. And you used some terms that I, will lose most people who are not philosophically trained. So you, I think you, you hit upon you know, that consciousness nomologically supervenes upon the physical or something like that. Um, you should unpack that. And also... Nomologically means under the laws of nature holding in our universe. Now, there could be other universes, logically possible worlds, in which these laws of nature do not hold. So the idea is that consciousness is determined from below, from the brain, may only hold in this world with these laws of nature, but it's not conceptually something that may hold across all possible worlds. That's the idea that that is the mystery that you are trying to isolate, that the mystery consists in the fact that we can always imagine that Sam Harris is a zombie, that he would talk, he would even talk about his emotions and his color experiences, um, but he would not have any inner perspective. That's the idea. That's the mystery. Well, well, I would strike a slightly different emphasis here, Thomas, just to catch people up. There's this argument that is a, I don't know if it originates with Chalmers, and he certainly made good use of it in his book, but this idea that we can conceive of a zombie, which is a being that functions and appears exactly like a human being, but has no conscious experience. The lights are not on in a zombie. It's just a perfectly humanoid robot that has no subjectivity or, or, or qualitative experience. Now, the fact that we can imagine such a thing does not even slightly suggest that such a thing is possible. It just may be that in order to get something that functions like a human being and seems like a human being from the outside, consciousness is always going to be necessary or will always come along for the ride. And I'm just agnostic as to whether or not 
that's the case. And, you know, I think as we develop AI, we may, you know, learn more and more about whether or not that's the case or, or cease to find it intellectually interesting. So I'm not arguing from the side of it's conceivable that there could be a zombie Sam and therefore there's a hard problem of consciousness. It's more that whatever I imagine the explanation to be, the idea that, you know, the first the lights are not on and then they come on by virtue of some complexity in the system, some... No, complexity doesn't explain anything. Complexity is not good. But then you can keep, change, I mean, you keep changing the, the, the noun, whether it's information integration or... Mm-hmm. or, or, you know, sure, or you sure, know, sure. So whatever the answer is, and, and there have been various answers proffered in, in recent decades, it still sounds like just a brute fact that doesn't actually explain anything. And that's, and that again, it's, it's not the way other scientific explanations, even with respect to life, function. Well, the last point may not be right. So, but what you're actually getting at is what is the value of intuitions? Uh, can we demand of a good theory of consciousness that it gives us an intuitive feeling, this is right, now I've understood it. We would never ask this of a theoretical physicist. If they tell us something about 11 dimensions and string theory, nobody would say, this is completely counterintuitive. This has nothing to do with my life world. This is just brute facts they're stipulating. We just trust these people. They know math. They have theories with high predictive power. They're very smart. And we don't demand this intuition. I would say we actually do. I mean, this has been famously what has been so unsatisfying about quantum mechanics, which is that no one, you're not, yes. not even Richard Feynman can pretend to understand it. All the physicists can say is that the math works out and it has immense predictive value, but it's still... That is enough. Yeah, well, it, 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 it could be enough. It could be enough. And, and I, you know, I take your point about the limit of intuition in that, you know, our intuitions were not designed by evolution for us to grasp reality as it is. Our intuitions were were designed to, you know, avoid getting hit over the head by another ape or to mate with his sister. Our intuitions are very crude. But again, we use certain intuitions that we have, you know, whether mathematical or otherwise, to leverage ourselves into areas where our intuitions are common sense intuitions and, and certainly our, our folk psychological intuitions are not good. So I I can certainly follow you there, but it still just seems to be the case that consciousness provides some kind of extra impediments here. So take something like platform independence. So like, you know, if we assume that there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat and consciousness is as mind is, as intelligence is, clearly platform independent, and therefore we could in, in principle build conscious computers that were non-biological, how would we move, in your view, from having characterized the neural correlate of consciousness in people into being confident that the computers that seem to emulate that functionally and, and informationally are themselves conscious? What I'm imagining the future of AI will very likely look like is that we will build computers that pass the Turing test with flying colors, you know, whether or not we've figured out the neural correlate of consciousness in apes like ourselves, 
we will build computers that pass the Turing test and that seem conscious to us. But unless we fully understand how consciousness emerges, we won't know whether they're conscious. They might say they're conscious. They might seem even more conscious than we are. And we will sort of lose sight of the problem. And I know you think that, as I do, that the, the fact of the matter, whether or not they are conscious, is hugely important, ethically speaking. And it would be monstrous to create computers that could suffer. So let's perhaps bring the platform independence issue into this conversation. And I, I know I've been talking a lot. I just I want to kind of give you the full landscape of my prejudice and confusion so that you can run over it. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. And of course, I fully understand what you mean. But we have to, you know, have to think about intuitions um, a little bit. They have a long evolutionary history. If I have an intuition that an explanation is satisfactory, it is, it is itself a kind of conscious experience. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There's not only a phenomenology of redness. There's also a phenomenology of, I just know this, but I don't know for what reason I know it or where the knowledge comes from. And in many cases, intuitive knowledge is fantastic. It comes from, con condenses knowledge from the world of our ancestors. Just think about social cognition. You know, if you have to set this intuition, this guy is dangerous or she is a good person. Um, this is a way of computing itself. It doesn't generate sentences in your head, but intuitions. Now, the question is, could we ever be intuitively satisfied? I think we cannot because our theory of consciousness will also tell us what a self is and what a first person perspective is. And that is something we will not be able to ever grasp intuitively what's coming out of there. But to come back to your question, you know that for a number of years I've strictly argued against even risking phenomenal states in machines. We should in no way uh, try attempt to create conscious machines or even get close because we might cause a cascade you know, uh, of uh, suffering, we might just inc increase the overall amount of suffering in the universe. And just because of this reason, it's very important to have a theory of consciousness. We must have one. So what would we do if we have the global neural correlate of consciousness? That was your question. The hardware doesn't matter. We need to know the flow of information. What is uh, the computation that is carried out? Then we have to describe this on the right level of conceptual granularity, meaning what corresponds to my experience of redness? What in that information flow is minimally sufficient for my intuition that we will never understand consciousness? What is minimally sufficient for my sense of selfhood and so forth? And if we have that mapping from our own phenomenology to fine-grained computational descriptions, then we can see, is this instantiated in a machine or not? The problem, rather, is that machines could have forms of suffering or forms of selfhood that we cannot even grasp because they are so alien and so different from our biological form of uh, you know, conscious experience or emotion. Maybe they would develop it and we wouldn't see it. Maybe it is already there and we wouldn't discover it. So there's certainly 
a great problem in you know across spaces spaces of consciousness conscious experience just as with the bad you're never going to understand what does it feel like to be the bad i mean to hear the echo of your own ultrasonic uh, calls is it like hearing i've heard people say no it's the dominant modality for the bad it's for the bad it's like seeing other people say, no, it's scanning a surface. It must be a tactile experience for the bat. It's like feeling a surface to fly through that echo. And that is, if it has data formats, as I call it, internal data formats that we don't have in sensory processing, that is something we will never know how it feels to instantiate these data formats. And that may be, may be happening with your machines as well, right? Uh, just on this point of echolocation, I don't know if this is analogous to what a bad experience is, but contrary to what most people assume, we can echolocate to some degree. If you if you just hold your hand in front of your face and hum yes. and then move your hand back and forth, you'll you will notice that your humming reveals to you the location of your hand. So um you can be a, you can be a very bad bat if you want to try this at home. <laughs> So let, let's talk <laughs> yeah, about the self because you, you raised the, the 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 topic of the self, which is another thing that people find inscrutable, and it of course relates to consciousness, and yet it, it is quite different. And I, I want to, you know, you have written a lot about the self, and I haven't read everything you've written, but I feel like there is some significant agreement here between the way we view it and the way uh, even traditional views that one meets in, in the East, like in, in Buddhism or Advaita Vedanta, that the self, as most people conceive of it, is an illusion. So I just want to I put that to you. I, I think we want to sure. distinguish between the whole person, and you know, I'm, I would not say that, that people are illusions, but most people are walking around with a sense that they have a self inside their heads, that there's a subject in the head, a thinker of thoughts, an experiencer of experience. This is kind of an unchanging rider on the horse of consciousness that just gets carried through from one moment to another and has various adventures, but is in some sense never quite changed by them. It's the center of the whole drama. How do you think about the self and in what sense are people confused about it? Well, when I looked at the problem of consciousness, I thought if I was an anti-reductionist, the most interesting, the most pro pressing problem is, is what is a first-person per perspective? And what would it mean for any information processing system to have a sense of selfhood and a first-person perspective originating uh, from it. This is the really difficult problem uh, to solve, I think. And I have, just as you, been guilty of this illusion talk in popular writings in the past. Uh, of course, it is conceptual nonsense to say the self is uh, an illusion because as a term, illusion means that there is a sensory misrepresentation of something where an outside stimulus actually exists. A hallucination is something where there's no stimulus and you still have a misrepresentation. But this sense of selfhood 
is only partly a sensory experience. Of course, it is grounded in what I call the introceptive self-model, in inner sensations in the body, in affective tone, in the emotions, in elementary bioregulation. All these are important layers, but we have this robust um, misrepresentation of transtemporal identity. And I have always firmly said, you know this uh, probably, uh, that none of your listeners ever was or had a self, and uh, that we can explain everything we want to scientifically explain about self-consciousness in a much more parsimonious way with much simpler explanations, uh, assumptions, much simpler structural assumptions. So for me, the question is, in a system that very obviously has no immortal soul or no self, we don't find anything like that in the brain. How does this robust sense of selfhood emerge? Because that is really counterintuitive, right? Uh, imagine people would try to believe that there is no such thing as a self. You cannot believe this, even if you want to believe this. Nobody can believe it. Well, well, well let me let me stop you there because. I not only yeah, I, yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I, I not only believe it, I experience it. I, I don't know if you have any significant experience with meditation or psychedelics, or have you have you gone down that path to see if you could confirm any of the the Buddha's claim here? Oh, I, I thought you knew that. Well, I, I do. I just I don't I just don't know how far it's gone. Well, I'm a regular practitioner for almost forty one years. Uh, I've done many retreats. So um, on the 11th of September, I'll be a regular meditator for 41 years. I've been in many ashrams, monasteries in Asia, Asia, done long retreats. What practice have you done principally on retreat? Well, basically just classic straight vipassana shamatha. Uh, so uh, the, the, the whole um, uh, classical thing, you can imagine that if one is into this for four decades, one has phases and tries out things and experiments too. But uh, it's just uh, the classical thing uh, here. And I've gone to many Buddhist silent retreats, friends. Yeah, yeah, great. So then when you say that no one can believe or imagine that the self is an illusion or that the self doesn't exist or that it's a hallucination, to use your other term, what do you mean? Because clearly people have an experience, people claim to have an experience of losing their sense of self, losing the sense that there's a thinker in addition to thoughts or that there's a, a seer behind their eyes. The thinker, if, that, if, that, if that's the whole thing, um, if it's just the cognitive self-model coming to rest, if you just mean this pure experience of effortless mindfulness seeing out of emptiness, if that is enough for um, selflessness, then I know what you're talking about. But I think there's a much deeper um, uh, problem behind it. So if somebody really reports about selflessness and states where there was no self, and you're this conservative, stubborn, analytical armchair philosopher who cannot imagine consciousness without self-consciousness, they will always say this is a performative self-contradiction. If you weren't there, why do you have an autobiographical memory of it? If you weren't there, 
this is not an episode of your life. So actually, I don't have to, you know, believe your phenomenological reports about this because they contain a logical contradiction. That's one aspect. Another aspect is you don't, you may not imagine how many philosophers uh, have such a lack of imagination that they always conflate self-consciousness and consciousness. There are so many people who think that this perspectival centeredness is a necessary aspect, but I can give a technical reason for this. If you try to mentally imagine a selfless experience, that is a mental action, the act of imagination, and it creates a sense of effort, a subtle sense of effort, and that's the selfiness. That's where the selfhood sits in, in the act of trying to imagine it. So you cannot imagine it. It's just like Thomas Nagel in his beautiful 1986 book, The View from Nowhere, thought he could imagine the universe from nowhere. But of course, this wasn't the real thing. This was not a mystical experience. This was just an armchair thought experiment of a philosopher where he never lost the sense of self. So, I mean, I'm absolutely um, certain that these experiences exist over the centuries and that they're also probably the most valuable states of consciousness human beings can experience. I also think that psychedelics play a major role uh, in getting many people uh, to take this dimension serious. Many of the meditation teachers in America have taken the standard route which was to start with LSD in the 60s, then see this is not sustainable, go to um, Asia, become monks, and then return and become teachers here. That was the standard route for many, to first in, in, experience ego dissolution with a pharmacological stimulus, and then suddenly see the depth and the meaning that is there, but at the same time see Mm, this is a little risky and it's not sustainable and then go about it in another way. Yeah, that was certainly my route. I, I did it later, but but I basically recapitulated the 60s curriculum for myself in the 80s. Yes, uh, we both have, you are, I think, not so much aware of the commonalities, but we've had rough times on Pokhara Lake, but uh, yeah. Both of us. <laughs> really? But, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I hope yours w weren't as rough as mine. For people who want the details of mine, they can see my book. Waking up. Uh, you're putting me in a difficult situation because you're asking me to admit to illegal activities yeah. in the public here. <laughs> it's just us, Thomas. I'll just put it like that. Either you're a consciousness researcher or you're not. Uh -huh. <laughs> and of course, there are many many people who are just academic entrepreneurs, you know, in consciousness research. But I think anybody who has a serious and a deep interest in these issues, they will not talk. They will just try out everything, um, you know, classical hallucinogens, as well as serious sustained meditation practice. That's how you tell if somebody has a serious interest in the growth of knowledge and not only an interest in an academic career. And that's also a part of the problem uh, with a lot of the academic research, but that's another podcast. Mm. 
So, so Thomas, I, I want to backtrack to something you said before. You made a, a distinction between the cognitive self and other things you might mean by self. And, and so when I'm talking about the dissolution of the sense of self that comes with meditation or can come with meditation, you said that, it, well, if that's just the self you mean, well, then, of course, you can, you can experience selflessness, but there's, it, it runs quite a bit deeper than that. What do you mean? How are you, how are you demarcating the cognitive self from, from other forms? Well, so I have this theory. It's called the self-model theory of subjectivity. There's a 700-page unreadable book called Being No One with MIT Press. It, it's not, not unreadable. It's, it's a, if, if you are a student of philosophy, it's a wonderful book to read. Don't and I recommend lie it. to your listeners. It's very thick, however. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So, if they can get through Chalmers, they can get through you. Uh, start with section A two before you do anything. A two, right? So, um, what I'm saying is, is that you have no self, but that you have a self model active in, in your brain, a naturally evolved representational structure, and that is transparent. Transparent means that you cannot experience it as a representation. That is, right now, as you are listening to me and to Sam, you are identifying yourself with the content of your own self-model, and you're completely glued into it as an organism. So what I've been interested in is, is this phenomenology of identification. How is the attachment created? The attachment to a thought, the attachment to an effective state, the attachment to a body. And in the last 30 years, I've treated this theory as a research program and filled in many different layers of the human self model in my research. Now, the last four papers I've written were on mind wandering and uh, the cognitive self model. Um, so the structure that I've developed a theory about what it actually means to fall into this illusion of being a mental agent, a thinker of thoughts. But before this, I've worked for many years on embodiment, and I've asked the question, which is maybe even more important, what is actually the most simple form of selfhood? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, Sam. What is the simplest form of having this selfie feeling? And I think if, say, you're sitting in meditation and you're in an emotionally neutral state, and there is complete quietness in your mind, there's a seeing out of emptiness, there's still this body sitting there. So I think there is an elementary sense of selfhood um, that we call spatial-temporal self-location and that we've tried to manipulate in virtual reality experiments and done a lot of empirical work on. So even with the completely quiet mind, there is still bodily self-identification and there's a deep bodily sense of self and the question is what forms of meditation or what hallucinogens actually dissolve this this bodily here and now that's much more fundament fundamental of course the thinker of thoughts can go if that is enough to say the self is dissolved i think that's a pretty accessible thing that many people can have it's a great question. What is the most rudimentary form of self? And for me, I think it is a matter of feeling like a locus of attention or really just attention. I mean, it's like 
in the Tibetan tradition, or at least in the Dzogchen tradition, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about dualistic fixation, you know, kind of subject-object perception. And this, in my experience, can persist even if the feeling of the body disappears. So if you're in meditation and your body just vanishes, your eyes are closed, say, and you know, most people, if they close their eyes now, they still, they still will feel all of the perceptual signs that they have a body. They'll feel the heaviness of their body in space, or they'll feel tingling and, or pressure or temperature. But in various states of meditation, especially when you get very concentrated, you can lose the feeling of the body. Certainly the sense of boundary dissolves, and you're no longer, there's no shape at all to your body, and there's no pain or, or sensations. So one thing that supports the way you're going is um, very interesting research from dream research. There is a rare subcategory of dreams, bodiless dreams. And what we find is there are dreams where you just experience yourself as an extensionless point in space. But the interesting thing, just as you just said it, is the sense of self is stable and you can control your visual attention in the dream. So. I think the most simple form of mental agency, way below um, symbolic thought, is actually this experience of controlling the focus of attention. That's a way of interaction. And in my last four papers, I've written a lot about this. And in meditation, I think if you take the standard Wendy Hasenkamp model of Vipassana meditation, you alternate between mental action and let it go. So your mind wandering, phase one. Phase two, there's meta-awareness. You suddenly realize, oh, I've lost it again. Then you act. Then you control your attention and go back to your breath. But then you have to do two more things. One is you have to let go of the subtle negative feeling of disappointment with yourself. I'm never going to learn this. this is, I'm just, I probably have a good genetic deficit or something like this. And the other thing you have to let go is the sense, the sense of effort that was involved in bringing your attention back to the breath. And if you then can rest for a certain while in a non-fragmented state, in an effortless form of mindfulness, then you have no sense of self and you will be disrupted out of this by the next mind-wandering phase. This, is, this cycle is the usual cycle for the Vipassana meditator. And, and the interesting thing is that you, you do just what you say. There is a sense of self. There's this, the biggest problem in meditation is the meditator, as everybody knows. The person that has sat down wants a reward, has read interesting books by Sam Harris, and now there's this goal state, you know, and now it's trying to coax or manipulate him or herself into something that is rewarding. And that's, that's a form of suffering, <laughs> and it's effortful. And I think you are actually very right. The most subtle form of selfhood on the non-bodily level is at what I call attentional agency in my writings. Um, the little experience of agency that is created when controlling your attention of, and of course in meditation that eventually has to go. You know, it has to go. 
strikes me that identification with anything from the point of view of attention is fairly paradoxical. Like, how is it that we come to feel identical to a thought that has arisen? And, you know, we haven't seen it arise. I mean, let's say you don't know how to meditate. The default experience is to feel identical to the next, what, what is in fact an object in consciousness. It is, it is something that is being known from outside itself. Otherwise, you couldn't know it. Your, your consciousness or your attention couldn't be aware of it. You know, first it wasn't there and now it's there, whether it's an image or a piece of language in the mind. I mean, you say something, you know, let's say I say something that you don't agree with, and the voice in your head says, oh, that's not right, or, or no, he's made a mistake there. Or, yeah. and, and, and that feels like you, and yet it is just an appearance in consciousness. How do you think about identification? Well, it's, and it is a horrible source of fragmentation. I don't know if you've noticed this. There is this, if you let it be, there's this holistic quality of the wholeness of the moment. And the moment uh, this identification is there, there's this fragmentation of the space of consciousness in it. Uh, it starts to, you know, break apart into different elements. So I have a theory about it. Uh, it's called the cognitive affordance theory. Um, so there's this old, there's a, a neuroscientist in the U.S. is called Paul Chizek, and he has a wonderful theory saying that what the brain actually does is it navigates an affordance landscape. Now, affordances is an old Gibsonian theory from psychology, which says what you actually perceive is not the chair, but this is something I could sit on. And you don't perceive the glass of water, but this is something I could reach for. That is the actual content of the perception. And that there is a lot of neuroscientific data that actually supports that. Now, what I'm saying is that the mind-wandering network, which is becoming known in the brain right now, is actually... It, it's not entirely in overlap with the default mode network. I call it the DMN plus network, but we don't have to go into neuroscience here. So it actually sends, sets up an internal affordance landscape. That is the biological function. So all these thoughts that you see arise in meditation are actually proto-selves or proto-thoughts that are calling out to you, think me, pursue me. I am the last of my kind. I will never come again if you don't think me, right? So uh, the idea is, is that prefrontal cortex executive areas latch onto elements from the default mode network that continuously compete in you, and then you identify. To put it differently, to give you an image, I think when I'm sitting in meditation and one thought after another comes, it is like a long line of children queuing up, standing in front of you, and every child raises his arm and it wants to be seen, and it wants to be briefly being hugged, else they won't go away. You know, they won't go away. And what you actually have to do is you have to notice every single one of these proto-thoughts and as it were briefly 
press, pick them up, hold them to your chest, and then let them go. And then the next child stands in line. And if you do this for a certain while, just observing them without an observer, in a quality of choiceless awareness, let them come. Let Don't suppress them. No effort. Just see them. Then they also wither away. That's the classical wisdom. That is what human beings have discovered centuries ago. And if you do this for a certain while, after a couple of thousand children, there may be, <laughs> you know, a break in the line suddenly. So I think there is something like an affordance landscape in the brain. And these are affordances for inner action. It's not like the chair or the glass of water, but it's a cognitive or an affective state that says, feel me now, this memory, when she said to you, can we not just be friends? And then the next thought comes and says, think me, attach me. So there's this internal competition for attention. And if you can break that mode of latching onto, then you can break the identification and you can see that what people call conscious thought actually is, at least I claim that, a subpersonal process. It is something like your breath or your heartbeat. It's a local process in the brain. And if you manage to see it without getting entangled in it, a completely new way of seeing emerges. But I guess you understand all of this um, very well. Mm, yeah, well, it's so interesting. I, I, again, to, just to connect with where most people, certainly people who haven't spent a lot of time practicing meditation will be, you know, they'll more or less just be taking it on our authority that any of what we're talking about now makes sense. And that there is a there there as far as experiencing a loss of a sense of self. But I've often thought that people actually lose their sense of self all the time, much more often than we give them credit for. You know, we have a phrase like to lose oneself in one's work. You know, you're concentrating on something and there's no distance between you and the thing you're fixated on. And then you know, the time flies. And this happens in athletics. It happens in, in many kinds of peak experiences. And these have been called flow experiences. But even in just the ordinary experience of being distracted, even in the most fragmented way, I feel like the, the sense of self is often dimmed to the point of nothingness. Because it's, it's not like there, there is a self there and meditation destroys it. There is no self there. There's nothing to destroy. And so people, without the experience being vivid to them, they're often experiencing this interruption of the self-sense again and again when they get diverted into anything, whether it's by a thought or by a use of attention. They get fixated on something. It's only retrospectively that when they come back to themselves that they feel that they have a self that has been carried through in each of those moments. In fact, you use this somewhere. You, you draw the analogy to anosognosia, where you know people can be paralyzed, yes. and based on neurological injury, usually to the this usually happens in women. Strangely, the, the neurologist V. S. Ramachandran has written about this a lot. But injury, usually to the the right parietal cortex, will lead to a hemiplegia on the left. The, the, the person will not be able to move her arm. 
but there can be a total denial of this ability. It's got to, it has to be more, more, more injury than just the parietal. You know, you need frontal injury there as well, but there's the denial seems to come with the parietal injury. So you have people who are completely unaware of this deficit and can be made aware of it for the briefest amount of time. But you draw the analogy from anisognosia, this denial of paralysis to a kind of denial of just what it's like to be us in terms of the self model. Yes, I mean, it's beautiful that you bring this up. And very interesting question, just to continue your line of thought, is could we suffer from something like introspective neglect? Could we have systematically blind spots, inbuilt blind spots, uh, in not noticing the discontinuities in our sense of selfhood? And, And they are everywhere. That is what is so beautiful about this explosion of uh, work on mind wandering now because it shows mm. that so many things that philosophers have thought about what thought really is are false we are all losing it hundreds of times uh, uh, every day i will never forget um i gave a talk to eminent analytical philosophers about mind wandering and how often we have these spontaneous tasks and unrelated thoughts and this really excellent philosopher says what do you mean i've been listening to your talk for one hour are you saying i've not been an epistemic subject all the time and i said oh yeah you lost lost it hundreds of times briefly for 300 microseconds And it just didn't compute, you know, and it got to the point, I told them there are all these empirical data. If you test people, we are off target for 30 to 50% of our daytime, and we don't realize it. We have introspective neglect, and we are off target for completely out of control mentally for two thirds of our conscious lifetime, if you take your dream life as well. And then it got to this point that this other wonderful American philosopher actually completely denied the empirical data and said, I know what this is. We are intellectual athletes. Only normal people have this. And actually just the opposite is true. You know, they are as top-notch intellectuals so unaware and so immersed in their cognitive activity that they don't um, see this. And the beauty of this new mind-wandering research is that it shows how discontinuous this mental level of selfhood actually is. I have um, formulated an empirical hypothesis. I call it the self-representational blink. So I'm saying there must be these, you know, black shutters and that it must be possible to experimentally detect this. But You don't have to do science or meditate. Every normal person can see this. If you're sitting on a bus stop and you just watch your thoughts, between two thoughts, there is something between two thoughts. What is seeing that? It's not the thinker. It's not the attending self. What is it that is as simple as that, that is aware of the gap between two thoughts? It's uh, analogous to what happens with a the visual suppression during a saccade. You know, you're moving your eye from point to point in your visual field, and in that movement, you know, we have as as just our default mechanism, we suppress data from 
the visual cortex so that the visual scene isn't continually lurching around with every eye movement. We essentially are, are, are functionally blind in those moments. It's analogous, it seems to me, what you describe with thought there. We're not noticing the breaks in the chain. Exactly. There's an automatic filling in process. Unless we're training to notice them, yeah. Yes, and isn't it important to train that? <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing that, I mean, this is, this to speak culturally and, and as a matter of the, the, the strange history of ideas, it is an amazing lack of facility and lack of awareness we have managed to accomplish in the West on this point. The, the introspection really never got off the ground in the West. You know, we had a, a brief moment with, with people like William James, who seemed to think there was something to be learned by paying attention to the flow of conscious experience. But then with the dawn of behaviorism and the way in which we, for understandable reasons, tried to understand the mind by understanding the brain and behavior merely, we really have to import some of this methodology and some of these ideas from the East. You know, it's, it's perhaps not an accident that science as we know it was born in the West, but in the East there really has never been any question that there's something of importance both psychologically and ethically to be understood, and it can only be understood directly by turning our powers of awareness upon themselves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. upon experience directly. We also have to see, I mean, the human self-model is a product of evolution of millions of years, but it opened the door, as opposed to the chimpanzee self-model, into cultural evolution. But this process is not in our interest. It also creates a lot of suffering. Um, the self-model we have as human beings is really something that brings a lot of conscious suffering into the world, and it was not optimized to make us happy. It was optimized to make us greedy, to have many children, to continuously co uh, compete. Um, there are many nasty inventions of Mother Nature that have been embedded into our self-model, like, for instance, self-esteem, this sense of self-worth that drives human beings forward, you know, and um, makes them follow religions and stuff like that. So it is really important also to understand the foundations of this process that has brought us here from two perspectives at the same time, from an internal first-person perspective and from the perspective of science. And what is actually better uh, is if we could have a zero-person methodology that's one step ahead. And I think that is the great um, contribution um, a the Asian cultures and Asian philosophy have made. But we also have to admit, I mean, I understand you have traveled in Asia a lot, just like I have done. These countries are all in terribly bad shape, you know, um, in terms of, you know, hospitals, freedom of speech, democratic culture. It hasn't served them well in certain other aspects, whereas we have all the technology and rational thinking and are burning out with acquired attention deficit disorders here in an ever-accelerating, you know, technological environment. So the question actually is, is, can one get this together in a secular way, in a really productive way? in an evidence-based and rational way. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree that the culture has not yet been 
created that fully embodies the totality of human wisdom at this point. I mean, what clearly we need rationality and empiricism, you know, third-person style Western empiricism of the sort that is typical of Western science. And we also need an understanding of where third-person methods stop or, or their, their cash value can only be expressed by being paired with more and more clear observation of what it's like to be us in a first-person sense. And you know, all of this has to be wrapped up in an ethical worldview which prioritizes what we, in fact, want to prioritize. I mean, what does it mean to live a good life? And what does it mean for 7 billion people to attempt that project? We're not there politically, economically, culturally, but I view it as a kind of, you know, it just has to be the, an ongoing conversation that does not respect cultural and geographical and linguistic boundaries. We have no right to be provincial anymore, and we just have to take the best ideas wherever we find them. That's very nicely put, um, but um, I think, I mean, if you want to take a little walk on the darker side, too, that um, this is happening. What you've just described is happening. There are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people on this planet already trying in their own way to do what you just said. But then again, I think mankind really has to go to a sort of bottleneck in the next two centuries. There are all these things happening in the outer world. Everybody knows this, climate change, population growth, and so forth. But there are a lot of difficult things also happening in the inner world. Um, so what science brings uh, is, for instance, insight into our own mortality. and. Um, we are all deeply, 80% of humankind on this planet are deeply anchored in systems of mortality denial. And I think many of the spiritual uh, traditions that you've mentioned that have developed this practical knowledge of meditation are also um, systems of mortality denial. And, and that is something that moves and fascinates me for a long time, how you can, at the one hand, you can have, say, super philosophers who are just so smart and have perfect cultivated intellectual honesty and rationality, and on a psychological level are really crippled human beings, you know, eaten alive by their own ambition, somewhere on the autism spectrum, not able to feel their own body. But then on the other hand, you can meet, as I have done, you can meet these monks and nuns with 15,000 hours of practice. And they say, come, come, come to us. Tell us about your, with open hearts, tell us about your consciousness philosophy in the West. We want to know all about it. And then you say, well, we don't believe in reincarnation. And then da 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 the shutters go down. And all that open-mindedness is suddenly gone. And um, it is very difficult. There are many Buddhists in the West now who pose as secular Buddhists in, in a certain sense. But uh, my suspicion is that, I don't know, I'd really be interested in your opinion about this, that for many long-term practitioners, serious practitioners, 
there is some delusional core to it because they need something to motivate themselves to sustain a systematic practice uh, for so many years. There is something untouchable always, some irrational belief system. So they are often not liberated from tradition. And I perceive this as a problem. I don't know if you have the same experience. Yeah, well, long ago I wrote a a short article in a Buddhist magazine, in the Shambhala magazine, titled Killing the Buddha. And there I argue that, you know, with the Buddhists, insofar as there's, there's any wisdom to be brought from Buddhism into the current moment, Buddhists or fans of the Buddhist teaching and, and fans of meditation practice have to get out of the religion business. And that's not, still not a very popular position, although I, I would point out that, let's say you believed in the doctrine of karma and rebirth as a Buddhist, the logic of it is really counter to what most people assume. It's not that rebirth is a good thing. It's not actually classical death denial. It's not that people want there to be rebirth. If you, if you told a Tibetan Lama, we prove there was no such thing as rebirth, and when you're dead, you're dead, that would actually be good news from a Buddhist point of view, because they conceive of this wheel of becoming to be intrinsically unsatisfactory, and that the project is, is of getting off this wheel of rebirth, no longer grasping at experience. Actually, this connects nicely to the, the final topic I think we should touch here, because you sent me this wonderful short essay that you wrote, which I think is still unpublished, titled Benevolent Artificial Antinatalism. This is a hard phrase for most people to parse here, but it connects here because there is a what is what you call a an existence bias that we all have, which is we assume that existence is a good thing. And what you do is uh, describe what you do in that essay, and this connects really everything we've talked about here: matters of life and death, artificial intelligence, the prospect of building conscious artificial intelligence. Give us the um, summary of, of your thinking there. I have been involved a little bit in the ethics of artificial intelligence. There's a lot going on here, constant public debates. But I think this debate is just about to become stale. Everybody parrots each other and repeats the same old arguments, but there is a much deeper dimension to it. and We actually haven't noted it. So this Bahn scenario, short for benevolent artificial antinatalism, is a kind of a thought experiment. It goes like this. Let's suppose a full-blown superintelligence has come into existence. It's autom autonomously self-optimizing itself, has an enormous factual knowledge and general domain-independent intelligence. It has irrevocably become much more intelligent in human beings. It uses all of the internet, all of mankind's scientific knowledge. It's continuously expanding its database. Now, um, we accept this. We are its creators. We acknowledge this fact. It's an epistemic authority to us. But it is also, that follows from that, an epistemic authority in moral cognition. So we also recognize this aspect is much better in thinking about ethics in an analytical way. So for us, it's an established fact, 
that the superintelligence is an epistemic authority in the field of ethical and moral reasoning. And it's benevolent. That is, there is no value alignment problem. It will never try to dominate us. It doesn't compete with us. The system fully respects our interests and the values we originally gave to it. Fundamentally altruistic supports us, including political counseling, social engineering. So what you're describing is the absolute best possible case. This is exactly if we do everything correctly in building artificial intelligence, this is where we would hope to arrive. Yes, but the whole point of the thought experiment is is that even this may present us with a great risk uh, because the superintelligence knows many things which we don't know about ourselves, for instance, about introspective neglect (laughs) and things like that. It knows many things we don't understand, sees deep patterns in our behavior, extracts abstract features of our brain dynamics, and so forth. It also has a deep knowledge of the cognitive biases that evolution has put into our cognitive self-model, and it sees why we cannot really think in a rational evidence-based manner about ethics. But it also knows something else. Uh, It knows that the conscious states of all sentient beings which emerged on this planet, if you look at them from the outside, are much more frequently characterized by suffering and frustrated preferences than these things would ever be able to discover themselves. So it knows that through the evolutionary mechanisms of our self-model and the self-deception that is built into our nervous systems, we cannot discover this. So it concludes we are unable to act in our own enlightened best interest. And then it also discovers that we uh, we shouldn't only maximize happiness, but that we should actually reduce suffering because that is much more urgent. Um, It discovers philosophical points that negative feelings in biosystems are not just a mirror image of positive feelings, that there's a much higher sense of urgency for change in suffering, and so on and so forth, that there's a phenomenology of losing control and losing coherence of the self. And it comes to the conclusion in the end um, that because of this asymmetry between suffering and joy, there is an even higher value, namely minimizing suffering in all sentient creatures. So it's an ethical superintelligence, not only in terms of processing speed, but it comes to qualitatively new results, what altruism actually means. And now it comes to the result that it would be in our own best interest to not exist. Conceptually, it knows that no entity can suffer from its own non-existence, and it suddenly concludes that non-existence is in the best interest of all future self-conscious beings on this planet. It knows empirically that we are completely unable to realize this fact because we have this thing, existence bias, and that is what you asked about. I find this one of the most fascinating topics. I've dubbed it existence bias because that may be actually the core of selfhood. Um, This craving for eternally continued existence. 
a super intelligence had no difficulty imagine to turn itself off if it came to the rational conclusion you know it would be best to not to not exist anymore a super intelligence would do that but we are these biological anti-entropic systems which have this horrible craving for existence and this fear of death built into us and this makes us unable to see certain very important truths about our own um, conscious way of being in this world. And the interesting project, I think, would be to understand what that existence bias is. If we look at the best computational models of the human brain we have um, right now, there's a continuous prediction going on a top-down prediction that you will still exist in 100 milliseconds and that you will still exist in five minutes. And then through a process that's technically called embodied active inference, we change the world to make this hypothesis come true. And that is really, I think that is the core of selfhood in beings like us, this craving for existence. And I think it's very important scientifically, as well as in terms of spiritual practice to arrive at a deeper understanding of what that actually is. What is this uh, craving for existence? Have you thought about it, Sam? Not much, frankly. I, mean, I, I, I see, obviously, it in, in myself, but it, it is paradoxical. For instance, when you think about what worries you about death, uh, most people assume that losing experience, you know, having the lights go out is part of the problem. But of course, we do that every night we fall asleep. You know, very, there are very few people who are clutching the sheets in terror as they drop off to sleep because they don't want to lose their seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking experience. And in fact, those nights where you can't lose it and you're you're suffering from insomnia, you know, that becomes its own torture. You just want the lights to go out, you know, as quickly as possible. So we're not afraid of being subjectively canceled. I, I would leave aside for the moment whether or not sleep is analogous to truly losing consciousness. I'm actually not so sure. But there's no question that from the point of view of most of us, it seems to be an experience where your, your life is totally interrupted which is to say you don't subjectively exist any longer, at least for the periods of deep sleep. So we're not worried about that. And then in order to get a handle on what does worry us, we have to think about all of the things we'll be missing. We think about the people we love being bereaved and, and missing us. And then we think about the future states of the world that we won't be around to see. But again, that is somewhat, I mean, you know, just to follow the, the logic of your AI here, you know, we non-existent people can't suffer. And so we won't actually be suffering our own absence any more than we suffered over the fact that we weren't around a, a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago. I mean, the fact that you weren't in Paris in, in the year 1850 doesn't bother you, presumably. So why should it bother you that you won't be there a hundred years hence? Or why should it bother you that you're not there right now? You know, Paris is getting along with, without either of us at the moment perfectly well, and we're not there to experience it. So this existence bias is somewhat paradoxical, though 
I certainly feel it. I guess there's two things I want to ask you about in this thought experiment, because there are a couple of assumptions there that seem to motivate it. One is that there is an asymmetry between the ethical significance of suffering and well-being, right? So that suffering is much worse than well-being is good, or at least potentially good. You don't really open the door to the possibility that whether or not there is this asymmetry now in terms of the creatures that exist, it may not be something that need be there for all time, because presumably there is some way of creating minds that are far happier than our own. You know, some future generation of humanity that is more integrated with its machines or has genetically engineered itself to suffer less and spend more time in awe at the beauty of the cosmos. There's some way of improving our circumstance with the help of this very benevolent AI that would make life more reliably worth living. Are you actually skeptical about that? Um, for the large number of sentient beings on this planet, yes. So there's an empirical premise in the thought experiment about which I've just given you some parts. And the part, the premise is that the AI discovers the functional architecture of our brain is so rigid that it cannot be changed. I mean, another possibility is, of course, um, that an AI helps us to all to become enlightened. I mean, this sounds much too Californian for me. I, I, I don't like to go there. But one empir the empirical premise is that this can't be done um, to change the suffering to happiness ratio uh, in human beings in an interesting way. But this may be just false. We might be able to do it. An AI might be able to help us. Maybe we've had an, a, a super intelligence on this planet 2,500 years ago. I mean, you're this Buddhist. Maybe you have noticed that what I'm asking for here actually is a neurocomputational model of the craving for existence. And this has been mentioned as Bhavatana in the second noble truth, uh, and the thirst for existence. This has been conceptually isolated in the core of the Buddhist teachings. So I think this would be a highly relevant uh, topic for computational modeling and so forth. But I don't want to avoid your question. I think, um, I think there are three circles of suffering on this planet. That's a way I think it for, to myself. There are 7.3 billion human beings that suffer. There are 60 billion um, farm animals in factory farming that suffer for human beings. We don't know how much number of wild animals suffering. Most of the conscious wild animals have two preferences. One is to live as long as possible, and the second is to procreate. But more than 90% of them get eaten uh, before they can even procreate. So there's massive uh, preference frustration. And one could argue that even if the AI would make all human beings into enlightened vegan Buddhas, so all the factory farming would stop and all human beings would stop to suffer. There would still be this ocean of suffering around us, the wild animal suffering. So I think if one goes deeper into this, um, this world is really a very problematic um, place to be in. And the early Buddhists, I think, have said that too. But I want to add one more point that should be up your alley too. 
Um, I think the human self model has something like a chasm or a rift. So we have this low level self model that implements these high biological imperatives, which say you must not die under no circumstances. We are survival machines optimized for millions of years. And as opposed to everybody else on the planet, we have this brand new cognitive self model that tells us your predictive horizon will shrink to zero. You will die. So we information gets into our self model that should not be there. You know, it creates a constant internal conflict. The explicit conscious knowledge about our own mortality with the deeper levels in the human self model. And that I think has to do with the evolution of religion. I think religions are what I call it adaptive delusional systems that help human beings in mortality denial. And I think also the like the criticism of the jihadi fundamentalist as somebody who's very irrational is actually a bit superficial because what is actually happening is we cause unconscious fear of death in these other cultures. That is why they are ready to sacrifice themselves. It's not only that they need a little bit of you know, rational argument and evidence. It's a very deep mechanism uh, in their self-model that gets touched unconsciously if they see how we live and what science tells you about the brain and all that. Thomas, I would just add there, though, that if you really believe in paradise, in this case, to, to connect with the example of, of a jihadist who's willing to sacrifice his life, well, then it becomes a perfectly rational thing to do. There's not much to overcome. If your denial of death is so explicit and persuasive to you, that, that you know, because you have a belief that death isn't real, right? It's a denial of the significance of life. This life is meaningless when you weigh it against eternity. You know, I think a, a psychologically normal person who would be in the throes of death denial and suffering this existence bias you discuss in this other context with a different belief system is quite happy to die because he knows that he's going somewhere better. Right. That's what worries me about the consequences of these specific ideas. I mean, these memes are contagious. It's possible to acquire this belief even relatively late in life, and it changes the operating instructions of a human life totally. It's just, it makes it completely rational yes, to sacrifice your life and, in this case, kill as many infidels or apostates as you can in the process. And it remains rational, uh, given certain assumptions. I fully agree with everything you say. It's excellent that you bring it up, but I think in this historical phase, that is actually one of the deepest problems we have as humankind, that about 80% of us are still somehow anchored in metaphysical worldviews, images of man, in some delusional system that works for them as their form of mortality denial. And now science and modern philosophy is taking all this away from us. As a matter of fact, it already has taken it away. And that's uh, the problem. That's also the bottleneck I've been talking about uh, for the next 200 years. Because 
against these viruses, these contagious delusional models of reality, you, just as you've analyzed it, rational argument doesn't help. And the big question is, of course, what will help? And um, maybe understanding their suffering uh, and what really drives them into the identifying with these, I like to call them alternative ontologies too, that would help. But you've already, um, you're already suspicious. I'm pretty pessimistic um, that we can achieve this on a global level. And um, you know that I'm active in the Giordano Bruno Foundation in Germany, so like the Brights in America. And um, I think, don't you agree that a lot of secular humanism this day is, is a bit superficial? I mean, you get these people who proudly declare, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I believe in evolution, and I'm not afraid of dying. And then they think they're cool. Uh, then there's a certain complacency, and I think that is enough already. And it's not enough. Um, I think we need something like a secularized spiritual tradition or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I've been thinking about this for for many years. It, it really, it, I kind of stumbled into my identity as a as an atheist because with my first book, I, I wrote a book very critical of religion, but I actually never used the word atheism in the book, in the end of faith. And it was only after that book was published and you had this phenomenon that really started in publishing first with the new atheists, and you had me and, and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett being treated as a kind of four-headed atheist in terms of the reception our books got. It was only then that I got inducted into this conversation about atheism per se. But atheism, on my account, is really just a way of clearing the space for better conversations. It's not itself a philosophy. It's not an ethics. It's not a worldview. And it certainly doesn't select for people who are especially in touch with some of the things we've been talking about. Let's say, you know, the utility of meditation, say, or the people who ha are most sensitive to the prospect of radically transforming conscious experience moment to moment, the people who have sought out various spiritual technologies, whether it's psychedelics or meditation or yoga or something, have tended to do that in a context which is just riddled with religious confusion. You know, it's whether it's New Age philosophy or or some traditional contemplative context, they become Buddhists, they become Christian contemplatives, they grab the you know the concepts from half a dozen traditions that they find attractive and jettison the rest, and they wind up yes, with something like you know what Deepak Chopra peddles to people, and it's philosophically and scientifically indefensible in in many respects, and then therefore becomes an object of ridicule by atheists who are you know very clear in what they don't want to endorse. But yes, there's there's clearly what we need is a spiritual, for lack of a better word, I mean, I always use that word in scare quotes, and ethical worldview and methodology to put in place of all of the indefensible versions that have come to us courtesy of religion. It has to be embraced in the spirit of science and logical and empirical rigor, but clearly there, there's more to the story than just understanding the brain and the mind in third-person terms. I and mean, we have to figure out what we mean by a life worth living, what the horizons of 
the well-being of conscious creatures actually encompass how good is it possible to feel personally and collectively as a human being given our circumstance and how do we build a civilization that maximizes for the flourishing of conscious creatures like ourselves and i mean it could be that that the thought experiment you just gave us is in fact true and we we are now stumbling toward a future where we will discover that the wisest source of ethics in the universe we know about tells us that it's better to pull the plug that's an interesting scenario but i suspect that it's possible that our, our navigation of the space of possible experience is more open-ended than that and it's just we, we have to find out how to navigate in a landscape of mind and possible minds where it's possible to suffer excruciating and pointless misery for a very long time and it's possible to move as far away from that as we can conceive into spaces of just purely creative aesthetically beautiful intellectually rewarding contact with the cosmos both within us and without us and you know wh- whether we can drag the hyenas and the rats and the squid along with us <laughs> to, to to do to do more than just suffer i you know I, i'm skeptical but um you know maybe we'll just be uh, putting mdma in the water supply as we leave this planet and wish them well well, as you know, it tastes really <laughs> that's, bad. That's true. <laughs> There's a wrinkle. Yeah. Uh, 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 all the things you have just said is where the two of us really converge, I think, uh, where we really see things in the same way. I think the mindfulness movement worldwide now has, has a real superficiality problem and the mirror image is really the secular humanism movement has a superficiality problem too and i mean one question why one might ask is if we don't need something like a consciousness ethics that's a term i've coined so that we complement traditional ethics not only by asking what is a good action but that we systematically ask what is a good state of consciousness what states of consciousness do we want to foster or cultivate in our societies? Which states of consciousness um, can we show our children? Which should we force upon animals or not? Should any states of consciousness be illegal in our society? Or I don't know if how many of your listeners have ever asked themselves these questions. Uh, in what state of consciousness would I eventually like to die? That's also an important question and um, maybe a discussion about the value of different states of consciousness could get us where we want to go. There's much more to talk about. We, we really have just scratched the surface of our areas of common interest here, but I see that we are at the end of about two hours and um, getting to the end of my studio time here. So I, I think we should just table it for next time, Thomas, because there's that we, we've got more to do, and I'll have you back on the podcast, and we will get into the details. Okay, it was really great to get to meet you, but I have an urge. There's two things I really need to say um, because I've listened to your podcast. Sure. And I think you've really achieved something here. You've created a novel public space where there previously was none, and in difficult times like this, is, I think it's quite an achievement. And a second thing. 
I wanted to say is the way that you are organizing and, and orchestrating intellectual resistance against the moron is really admirable, I believe, from our European perspective. And <laughs> I just want to say you should have no misperception. And I've gotten a bit of media attention in my life too, and I know how this feels, the hate mail, all the, the crackpots, the trolls on Twitter. But there's something you should never forget, and that there's a very large silent majority of us out here who agree with your initiative, people whom you will never meet and who never say anything, even in remote countries like Germany. We're all on your side. So just please keep going. Full steam ahead. Well, thank you for saying that. It's great to hear. And um, I will, and I'll have you back, and we'll do it together. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Thomas. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.